Well, uh, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6 tonight. And we're going to start out with a word of prayer before we get into it. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for your word. It's always a blessing to come to it and just to, just to see what your Holy Spirit has to say to us and what you want to do in our life. And, and Lord, we're so grateful for that. And we pray you do that work in us tonight. Lord, we want to lift up Pastor Paul as he's still having trouble with his blood pressure. And Lord, hopefully they got his medications and everything worked out to where it'll get down to where it needs, needs to be. And so, Father, we pray have your hand upon him tonight as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right. Galatians chapter 6. We're going to do the whole chapter tonight. This will finish up the book. You remember that um, Galatia is a region. It's not a church. It's a series, of, a, a group of churches in the region of Galatia. The problem that they had was that Judaizers were coming in, and they were trying to get the Christians to believe that what they needed in their life now was to adhere to the law, specifically for the men that they needed to be circumcised. And then also to, to follow all the other laws, and Paul's going to address that in, the, in this chapter as well as he has been in the other ones. Um, but uh, this was the problem that Paul was addressing and trying to show them that that, that it was futile. The idea of trying to obtain your righteousness, your holiness to the keeping of the law was impossible. As a matter of fact, Paul, in the beginning of the book, had said, you know, who has bewitched you? Who has convinced you, having begun in the spirit, do you think that you can really finish in the flesh? There's no way. And it, Paul has made it a purpose to share with us and the churches in Galatia that the idea of keeping the law is a very fleshly thing, and it's not spiritual. Although the Judaizers, they would say differently, that they were more spiritual than others because they kept the law. But the truth is they didn't keep the law. No man could keep the law, and that's the problem with the law. It was never designed to bring righteousness, but to reveal our unrighteousness so that then we would have this dependency upon God and the Holy Spirit in order to be able to find our righteousness through Jesus Christ. So, the Galatian saints who have not been enticed away from grace by the wiles of the Judaizers and who were therefore, who are therefore uh, still living spirit-controlled lives are exhorted to restore their brethren who have been led astray here in chapter 6. Back to a life under grace. And he starts out here in verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So he starts out here and he, he says, those that have been overtaken uh, in any trespass. The thought is that of someone running from sin, but sin being faster, overtakes and catches him. So it's not the individual who is purposed in their heart, but they could care less that they're just going to sin. We are talking about those that they, they want to do what is right, but sin has overtaken them. And so when you're overtaken in a trespass, it is that it has caught up with you and taken over. Paul realize, recognizes that there will be those in the church that have been overtaken by sin and they are not to be excluded from church, but they are not to be left to their sin either. So in other words, you know, there are those that are going to be, they're going to be overtaken, they're going to be caught up. But what we don't want to do is ignore that. We have to deal with it. And so uh, therefore there's the exhortation and for those who are spiritual, uh, you know, to, to help a brother who has fallen into sin. The one who is spiritual is walking in the spirit, and walking in love and joy and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You may recognize that from last week in chapter 5. Paul designated it. He showed us that this is the fruit of the spirit, 
in our life. And so the one who is walking in the Spirit is walking in those things, in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the one who is doing this will have the heart that looks to restore such a one. In other words, you're, uh, they're not looking to finish them off. They're looking to lift them up, which, man, I mean, I've seen it happen in times past, and I may have even been guilty of it once or twice in my life. I don't know. I can't recall any, but knowing me, well, no, I'll, I'll take it back. I, I must have, because I know there's a couple of times the Lord has had to deal with me in the fact that uh, in exhorting people, uh, I, can, I can be pretty stern. And uh, I, you can be right on about what you're saying and be right wrong, very wrong in what you're doing, even though you're saying the right things is how you do it. And in particular, the Lord has had to speak to me about the fact that the word of God is not a broadsword, it's a scalpel. And it's not to remove the ear of an individual, it's to remove a cancer out of the skin. And, and at times, you know, when I was younger especially, you know, yeah, the word says this, you know, kind of thing. And I'd, I'd be dead right in what I was saying, but the way I was going about it and everything, it was, it was very wrong. It was not restoring such a one. I was finishing them off. Uh, those that need to be restored, they are not being ignored. They are not to be excused. They are not to be ignored. They're not to be excused. And they're not to be destroyed. The goal is always restoration. To restore, that word is from the word in the Greek uh, that has the following meaning. I don't know if I would bother to go with the Greek word itself. I'll just give you the definition. It means to repair, to restore to a former good condition, to prepare, to fit, uh, to fit out, and to equip. And it's used of reconciling, reconciling factions, of setting bones, of putting a dislocated limb into place, of mending nets, of manning a fleet, of supplying an army with provisions. So you get the idea that this word restore, uh, and I particularly like the one about the setting of a bone that's broken, to take it and put it in place. Because it, it's painful, uh, but when it's done correctly, then it's useful, right? If a bone's not set properly, and there are, as a matter of fact, uh, you have uh, Mephibosheth, right, in the book of Samuel, who, what was his problem? Oh, when he was a baby, uh, his nurse dropped him and broke his legs and his feet, uh, and so he couldn't walk. It, they were never set straight. And so that bone being out of place uh, prohibits us from being able to be as functional and as the best that we could possibly be. And so those that are spiritual, they are the, the bone setters, to take someone who has found themselves overtaken by sin, hurting, and, and being set in place, put back into a place to where it can be healed and that they once again can be uh, able to function as they need to. This job of restoration is often neglected in the church. And we have a tendency to either pretend the sin never happened or we tend to react too harshly towards the one who has sinned. The balance between these two extremes can only be negotiated by the spiritual. It should be normal to do what God says here, but it isn't. It is all too easy to re respond to someone's sin with gossip, harsh judgment, or undiscerning approval. And, and certainly I would say that's even still an issue today in the church. Restoration must always be done in a spirit of gentleness with full understanding of our own weakness and corruption. Those doing the restoring must guard against the temptation of pride as well as the same temptation the overtaken one struggled with. I would say that I have found often in my life, I, will, I don't know what percentage, but very often, that when I've had to go to someone and to uh, exhort them to 
restore them and that kind of thing. The Lord has been gracious enough to me to show me my propensity toward it, even if I am not practicing it, that I could be practicing it, which then gives me a heart of compassion. See, because if I don't think I would ever do that, I can develop a heart of pride. But if I think that I'm just like everybody else and I could fall into that same sin, well, then it, it gives me the humility that's necessary to go to such a one and to restore them. There's no better way to, uh, to be encouraged by someone than when they first come to you, you know, and they tell you, I really understand this because I couldn't do this myself. Or in, and there's been times where the Lord has showed me that very same thing in my life, and I've had to say, I'm guilty of this same thing. So, you know, don't think that I'm pointing fingers at you. You know, I'm, I am looking into my own heart as well. And that's what we have to have, is that spirit of humility as we go to someone. And um, it's not something we need to look for. It's something that will present itself, and when it does, we just need to handle it with the grace and the mercy and the humility that God wants us to do so. But the most unmerciful thing that we can do is to ignore it, to not speak to that person, you know, to not tell them that there's something wrong that needs to be corrected, because eventually it will it'll produce some things in their lives that they're not going to be real happy about. In verse 2, he says, We are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So when Paul brings up the idea of someone being overtaken by sin, he paints a picture of someone carrying a heavy load. He then points out, that we, as the body, should bear one another's burdens. The focus isn't on expect others to bear your burdens. That is self-focused and always leads to pride, frustration, and discouragement, and depression. Instead, God always directs us to be others-focused and says, bear one another's burdens. We should be willing to come and to help one another. And whatever it may be that we find ourselves in. And, you know, I'm, I'm just be honest with you, I'm grateful for this church because you guys do a great job of that. I see it happen often when one part of the body is hurting, then the whole body hurts, and the body comes and rallies around them and ministers to them and their needs. And I'm grateful to the Lord for that. Do we do it perfectly? Not everybody can be like me. I'm just checking to see if you're asleep. No, we don't do it perfectly, but I know this, one thing, it is the heart. This is our heart. That's what we want to do. It's a simple command to obey, look for someone with a burden, and help him or her carry it. It does not take a program or a lot of infrastructure. We just do it. And so fulfill the law of Christ. When we bear one of, as we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill that simple law of Christ that is spoken of in John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another, and by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You remember in that chapter, Jesus demonstrated to them what it means to love one another uh, and actually what it means to love your enemy. Jesus, at the end of supper, took a towel and girded himself in a bowl and he went around and he began to wash the disciples' feet, including Judas. He washed their feet. The one whose feet should have been washed by all of them washed all of their feet. God incarnate in the flesh lowered himself to the lowest state of a servant that was known in that culture at that time. There was no servant lower than the one that did the foot washings when people came into the house. And Jesus did that and then declared to them, so I have done to you, now you do one to another. You love one another. Demonstrate that love by serving one another. That's what he set as an example for all of us. 
And that's what you know falls right in line with this whole idea of, of carrying one another's burdens. And when a brother or a sister is, is you know, given over to sin, they've been overtaken by sin, uh, that, that we come alongside them, encourage them to come out of that, to trust in the things of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and to be built up again to be able to walk. The idea is not to carry someone for the rest of their life, but to carry them to the point to where they're healed so that they then can walk again right? That's what God wants. That's what God wants for us. That's what he wants for all of his church. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So what will keep us from bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ? Simple enough, it's pride. Pride, which is when anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing. It is often pride that keeps us from ministering to one another as we should. We think we're too good for it, you know? And that's the thing that Jesus warned against there in chapter 13 when he washed the disciples' feet. You know, you call me, you call me teacher, you call me Lord, and, and you're right for doing that. And, and I have taken, I've washed your feet. Now, you need to do likewise one to another. And if, if, a, if the Son of God can stoop to the lowest position of servanthood, is it unreasonable that God would expect that we would stoop to the lowest position of servanthood? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Matter of fact, we should consider it honor uh, to be, you know, in the same camp as Jesus, you know, being that servant of all. Matter of fact, that's what he definitely told all of his disciples, if you want to be great, and to the 12, he said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be the servant of all. You know, as, as leaders, you've got to be servant leaders. You need to serve the people and lead in that fashion. It is important to understand that Paul writes to every Christian when he says, when he is nothing, because we all are in that state. Paul isn't saying that some Christians are, are something and others are nothing. And the problem is that not, the nothing think they are one of the somethings. That's not what Paul is stating here at all. Paul writes with the same idea behind Philippians 2, 3, and 4. It says, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So when it comes to this idea that we are to esteem others better than ourselves, that they are more, more important than I am. And it doesn't matter what, where we are uh, within the body of Christ. You know, the problem never enters when everybody thinks that everybody else is better than them. The problem comes in when somebody thinks they're better than somebody else. And it doesn't matter, you know, you, you can see it happen in all, all parts of the church, you know, from leadership, thinking they're better than those that aren't in leadership, you know, and for those who are not in leadership, thinking they're better than other people that are in the church. And sometimes they think they're better than leadership, <laughs> you know. And so that's where the problem enters in is when we start thinking that way. And in fact, we are, if Jesus could lower himself to this position, then we too should lower ourselves, esteeming others much better than ourselves. If I esteem you above me and you esteem me above you, a marvelous thing happens. We have a community where everyone is looked up to and no one is looked down on. And that's the way it should be. Um, he says here that uh, someone who thinks himself to be something is nothing he deceives himself there are a few things uh, there are few things more self-deceptive than pride to be proud is to be blind blind to the freely given favor and gifts of God blind to our sin and depravity blind to good in others blind to the foolishness of self-centeredness Satan is the supreme example of someone who thought he was something when he was nothing. And when, he, and when we are full of ourselves, we put ourselves in that same league with him. You know, it's, Satan is one of those uh, very tragic 
stories within the scriptures because the, the, the scripture speaks of them as being one of God's greatest creations. He was marvelous, he was beautiful. Many believe, and I do too, that uh, he was the worship leader of heaven. But the problem is, is that he was so full of himself that he determined that he thought that he could be God. Pride absolutely destroyed one of the greatest things that God had created, you know? And, and so we don't want to find ourselves in that same kind of, of camp. You know, I, I am much better at it now than I was in years past. I'm not near as proud as I have been in the past of my life. Uh, but I would say to you, I am not devoid of pride in my life. And every once in a while, it rears its ugly head, and I see it, and it's just as ugly as it can be. It does not need to be in my life. And the Lord is gracious enough to humble me and to show me that, you know. And so I, I often ask the Lord to help me with my pride, that it would not become something that would destroy my life, my ministry. It has a, a tendency that it can take over and just ruin you for your life, you know, sometimes to the point of where you just can't be restored because of, of the damage that is done. I think of the memory verse for this month, my little plug for it, 1 John 1, 8 and 9, right? If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But then, of course, the wonderful promise of that same ver or next verse is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So they po he points out that if we say we have no sin, and, and I, I like to look at it, when I start thinking I'm not as much a sinner as I, you know, I don't think I'm as much a sinner as I was or whatever, I'm probably in a dangerous spot. I need to remember. I'm just as great a sinner as the day that I met Jesus Christ. I'm still that same guy. I just don't do the same sins, right? In Galatians 5, 26, Paul told us that we are not to be conceited. He said there, uh, it was the last verse last week, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Pride and conceit go hand in hand. Pride and conceit go hand in hand. And he, would, he warned us of that. Do not become conceited. Don't think more of yourself than you ought. Think better, think more of others than you do yourself, and you'll have fewer problems in your life. You'll have fewer problems in your family. You'll have fewer problems in your workplace. You'll have fewer problems in, in life in general, and especially in your walk with God. Verse 4, but let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. So, Something must be laid aside if a believer is to be the burden bearer, and that is conceit, an attitude that breeds intolerance of error in others and causes one to think he is above failure. The remedy for self-conceit is found in verse 4. Everyone is told to test his own actions. This means that rather than comparing himself with others, he should step back and take an objective look at himself and his accomplishments. Then he can take pride in himself over what God has done in and through his life. The New Living Translation puts this verse this way. It says, pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. Comparing ourselves to someone else is, can be very disheartening because I can always find a lot of people that do a better job than I do. And I can always find a lot of people that do a worse job than I do too. But the problem with that is, is that nowhere in the scripture am I called to compare myself to others. I'm to compare my, I am to compare myself to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And that's where I find my, my value. That's where I find my worth. You know, God is the one that says that he loves me, he cares for me, and that I'm worth dying for. And he also tells me the things that I need to do to walk right with him 
and the things to avoid that I, so that I'm not walking against him. Verse 5, for each one shall bear his own load. So the Christian does, in fact, test himself by carrying his own load. This does not contradict verse 2 because the reference there is uh, to heavy crushing loads and they're to bear up under more than a man could carry without help. In this verse, a different Greek word uh, is used and it is used to designate the pack usually carried by a marching soldier. It is the burden Jesus assigns to his followers in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 30. The New Living Translation puts it this way, For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. There are certain Christian responsibilities or burdens each believer must bear, which cannot be shared with others. Jesus assured his disciples that such burdens were light. When we come to the Lord and we allow him to carry our burden for us, we find that the one that he gives us is light and it's easy to carry. In verse 6 it says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. It's interesting, this word here for share is a word that we're very familiar with in our fellowship. Every month, uh, well not every month, but often throughout the year, the first weekend in the month, we have what we call our Koinonia meal and we it may be in the form of a barbecue or a potluck or whatever it may be and that that word simply means a common a common shared meal and that's what the word is here when he says let him who has taught the word share koinonia in all good things with him who teaches it refers to uh, in the New Testament, koinonia refers to the sharing of material blessings with one another. We see that in Acts 2.42 as they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and then prayer. And then also again in 2 Corinthians 8.4 and Hebrews 13.16. We see that it speaks of having that commonality within the church that we share with one another. And it is talking about physical things as well as spiritual. It is that, this that Paul has in mind in these verses. He begins with a precept, urging us to share with one another. The teacher of the word shares spiritual treasures, and those who are taught ought to share material treasures. Paul uses a similar approach when he explains why the Gentile churches ought to give an offering to the Jewish believers in Romans 15, 27. We must remember that we do with material thing, what we do with material things is an evidence of how we value spiritual things. We are told in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there, there will your heart be also. Because the Apostle Paul did not want money to become a stumbling block to the unsaved, he earned his own living, uh, but he, create, he repeatedly taught that the spiritual leader in the church was to be supported by the gifts of the people, and Jesus said the laborer is worthy of his hire in Luke 10:7. And Paul echoes this statement in 1 Corinthians 9, 11, and 14. That's not, that's not my words. That's God's words, okay? There, there are certain spots in the scripture that I'm never comfortable with teaching. I'm never comfortable about talking about the relationship between people and God and their money. I really believe that that has to be a work of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart. But the scriptures spell it out for a reason, and that's because there's nothing, God never tells us anything in, uh, that we don't need to hear right that's why he tells husbands love your wives and he tells wives respect your husbands because men need respect and wives need their need the love and god tells us that in his word because those are the greatest needs that we have and so it is too that whenever god brings something up like this it's because we need to hear it we need to know it there's a um there's a proper heart and attitude towards giving that that we should have. And that is in Corinthians 
where it tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. Give from your heart. And I don't care what it is. I wouldn't even begin. I would, I would not want to limit you with what I would say. I would leave it up to God's Holy Spirit to put it on your heart to give according to how God has blessed you. Because that's what the scripture says, right? We don't make a big point of that around here in this church. And I only teach on it when it comes up in the scripture. The other thing that I do not like to talk about is uh, physical intimacy within a mixed group. That's even, that includes when I'm doing marital counseling. I hate it. I could sit and talk with a guy all day long. It's fine. But when his wife's sitting there, I have trouble. It's difficult for me. Okay? I'm a very modest guy. Anyways, so verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. We must realize the spiritual, this, the spiritual principle that lies behind this precept. God does not command believers to give simply uh, that pastors and teachers and missionaries might have their material needs met, but that the givers might get a greater blessing. And what we see here, and we'll get to it, or we are looking at it right now in verses 7, and then we'll get to verse 8. The basic principle of sowing and reaping is found throughout the entire Bible. God has ordained that we reap what we sow. Were it not for this law, the whole principle of cause and effect would fail. The farmer who sows wheat can expect to reap wheat. If it were otherwise, there would be chaos in our world. Right? God has ordained life in this way. But God has also told us to be careful where we sow. And it is this principle that Paul deals with here. He looks on our material possessions as seeds, and he sees two possible kinds of soil, the flesh and the spirit. We can use our material goods to promote the flesh or to promote the things of the spirit. But once we have finished sowing, we cannot change the harvest. That's so true. That's why it, it's really important. It, we, there's a principle to what we have. All of our possessions belong to God. We are just simply stewards off of that. God has given us those things. Now, how we use them really depends on whether or not we're sowing to the flesh or the spirit. You know, I'll use this as an example, and it's not one that I that I just really. Uh, death on or anything but the truth is this you know one of the reasons why I don't buy a lot of ticket when it has a one billion dollar jackpot because the money that I have doesn't belong to me it belongs to God and if I waste his money what am I doing so that goes with anything that I'm doing in my life if I'm taking his money and I'm using it for other things than what he would have me use it for because everything that I have he wants me to invest in the kingdom in him, sowing to the spirit, not to the flesh. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not one of those that thinks that we need to sell everything that we own, go, you know, live up on top of a mountain and eat dried grass and become a vegetarian or something. You know, I, I'm not that kind of a person, right? But truth is, uh, what we have belongs to the Lord, and so we need to use it. And, and I'll, I'll use this as an example. Um, I, I bought a, I, I had a friend of mine that ended up with two Harley Davidsons. That's almost sin, but anyways, he ended up with two because he had to buy them from a, a police auction. He bid on three and he got two of them and he had to take both. They wouldn't let him just buy one. So I'd been looking for a bike. I wanted a bike. And so he says, hey, he says, look, he says, I need a kitchen. He says, if you'll build me a kitchen, I'll give you one of the bikes. And so I prayed about it. I said, Lord, you know, is this okay? Is this something you want me to do? Well, the Lord, the Lord did so much. It's incredible. He gave me all the materials to build a kitchen for a ridiculously low price. Uh, and I was able to do it and build the, build the kitchen and get the motorcycle. Man, that was great, man. The Lord was so good to me. Well, the problem was it had a broken crank pin in it. So then I, it sat in my barn literally for over two years. And I'd go out there and I'd look at it and I'd think about it. I'd say, ah, oh, man, I can't wait till I get this going and everything. 
Well, in years past, you know, before I became a Christian, I would have probably sold Barbara and Katie in order to get the money to rebuild the bike. <laughs> but this time I said no, you know. And, and the Lord, it, it, the bike became the Lord's. And there were people that came to faith through that bike, uh, through the putting it together, the painting of it, and all these different things. There were different people that I ended up being able to share the gospel with that came to faith through that motorcycle. And God told me that I could have it as long as it didn't become more important than him and my ministry and my family. Anytime that that changed, he would take it from me. And uh, the Lord blessed me with that bike, and, and I loved that bike. And it, it was just a wonderful thing to see God, and it was his motorcycle. And I used to tell people all the time, I, if somebody wanted to ride it, I had no problem. Go ahead. It's not my motorcycle. It's God's, so go ahead. But then the insurance company said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just the way it was. Point being, right, everything that we have belongs to the Lord. And it doesn't mean that, you, that you're not able to enjoy life and have things. It just means that it belongs to him. And, and you need to let it be used by him for whatever he wants to do. No matter what it is, if it's a gift or a talent or money or objects or whatever it may be, they all belong to the Lord. We're just simply stewards. We get to handle all of God's stuff to do with what he wants to do with all those things. If we have that kind of a mindset, believe me, you, you just don't get too attached to things, right? I call it the open hand principle, and that is everything that God wants to put in my hand, he can, and anything he wants to take out, he can. But the moment I try to clench my fist around those things, then what I have done is there's two things. One, I've prohibited God being able to use these things for his glory. And secondly, for him to continue to bless my life and put something else in there too. So if you have that open hand where, Lord, here, it's yours. Do with it whatever you want. I think you'll find that God really wants to bless your life. You know, And obviously, it's not to make millionaires out of us because I would be one if that was the case. No, I wouldn't because it would destroy me. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be ruined if I had a million dollars. I wouldn't follow the Lord anymore, I'd venture to say. So the Lord just says, I'll just keep you broke, and that works just fine. Verse 8. Verse 8, it, it tells us very clearly. It says, for he who sows to this flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So money sown to the flesh will bring a harvest of corruption. That money is gone and we can never, it can never be re reclaimed. Money sown to the spirit, such as sharing with those who teach the word, will produce life. And in that harvest will be seeds that can be planted again for another harvest and on and on into eternity. If every believer only looked on his material wealth as seed, and planted it properly, there would be no lack in the work of the Lord. Sad to say, such seed is wasted on carnal things and can never bring glory to God. Of course, there is a much wider application of the principle of our lives because all that we do is either an investment in the flesh or the spirit, and we shall reap where whatever we have sown, and we shall reap in proportion as we have sown. In Galatians 5.26, it said, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another to envying one another. The believer who walks in the Spirit and sows in the Spirit is going to reap a spiritual harvest of his sowing. Uh, if his sowing has been generous, the harvest will be bountiful. If not, it, in this life, certainly in the life to come. In verse 9, now let us grow, just wash my tongue, can't do nothing with it. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. This is a great verse, especially if you find yourself becoming a little fatigued in your service of the Lord, in your service of the Lord, not of your service of the Lord. If you're, if you're becoming fatigued of your service of the Lord, you got a different problem than this one here. But I can tell you this, 
We are told not to grow weary while doing good, because in due season it shall, we shall reap if we don't lose heart. This due season uh, we shall reap. And the old King James says, if we, if we faint not. I like that translation better. Behind this promise is the peril, is a peril. Getting weary in work of the Lord and then eventually fainting and stopping our ministry. Sometimes spiritual fainting is caused by the lack of devotion to the Lord. It is interesting to contrast the two churches that are commended for work, labor, and patience. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 and Revelation 2.2. 2. The church at Ephesus had actually left its first love and was backslidden. We see that in Revelation 2, 4 and 5. Why? The answer is seen in the commendation uh, of the Thessalonian church. Work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope. Not just work, labor, and patience, but the proper motivation, faith, love, and hope. How easy it is for us to work for the Lord, but permit the spiritual motivation to die. Like the priest of Israel, that Malachi addressed, we serve the Lord but complain. In Malachi 1.13, it says, Behold, what a weariness is it to serve the Lord. It's easy to get to that place if we do not continue to maintain that personal relationship with God day in and day out. You know, uh, there, there are two examples in the New Testament of, of working, you know, one of them's Martha and the other one's Mary. Martha, she was about all the business, man. Work, 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 work all the time. Mary, she was all about sitting at the feet of Jesus and taking in, taking in, taking in. Martha says to, to Jesus, Jesus, what are you going to do about my sister? She's sitting on her butt and I'm doing all the work. Well, she didn't say that just like that, but it was kind of like that, you know. And Jesus made sure that, that Martha understood that Mary chose the best part. And that is to come to Jesus and to sit at his feet. Because after we have spent that time at the feet of Jesus, now for those who wait upon the Lord, he shall renew their strength. Now we can get up and we can go and serve the Lord. But trying to just serve the Lord all the time without sitting at his feet, pretty soon we grow weary. We faint. We have to make sure and maintain that level of devotion to the Lord. When we contrast these two churches, we see how one, they were, they were backslidden. The, the rebuke was, you've lost your first love to Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. And you realize that was a, that was a very short period of time after the church had been started. You know, less than 60 years. The church had already lost its first love. Thessalonica, I mean, they were in it. Faith, hope, and love. Sometimes we faint because of lack of prayer. In Luke 18.1, it tells us men ought always to pray and not to faint. Boy, I got to tell you, I probably beat that drum of prayer for so long that the skin's got stretched because I beat it so long and hard. You know, it, it never seems to amaze me how difficult it is to get people to come out to pray. You must not believe in it. Otherwise, you'd be there. Prayer is important. Without prayer, the army of the Lord goes down. We need to gather to prayer. Corporate prayer is important. Personal prayer is important. And it should be that we... We'd have to lock the doors because the room's so full that we can't get any more people in there to pray. That's the way it should be, right? Prayer is to the spiritual life what breathing is to the physical life. And if you stop breathing, you will faint. Promised. It's also possible to faint because of the lack of nourishment. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, according to Matthew 4, 4, are the words of our Savior. If we try to keep going without proper food and rest, we will faint. How important it is to wait upon the Lord to renew their strength. But the promise 
Paul gives us will help us to keep us going. In due season we shall reap. The seed that is planted does not bear fruit immediately. There are seasons to the soil, soul, excuse me, there are seasons to the soul just as there are seasons to nature. And we must give the seed time to take root and to bear fruit. How wonderful it is when the plowman overtakes the reaper, according to Amos 9.13. Each day we ought to sow the seed so that one day we will be able to reap. Psalm 126 verses 5 and 6 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed of sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him, the promise of the harvest. But we must remember that the Lord of the harvest is in charge and not the laborers. He is the one that determines how the harvest is going to go. But I will give you an example of someone who, who was faithful in prayer for years and years and years for one of his good friends. Uh, uh, his name is George Mueller. Many of you know who Mueller is, was, I should say. He's gone to be with the Lord. He was definitely a man of faith. He trusted the Lord. He prayed, and God answered prayers. He had a friend of his that he prayed for for years and years and years that never came to faith. When Mueller, at his uh, funeral, a mutual friend that Mueller and this guy had spoke to this guy and informed him that Mueller had prayed for his salvation every day. And it so touched the man's life that he gave his heart to Christ. Mueller never saw the fruit there but he saw it later when the man entered into the kingdom of heaven. We should not lose heart and trust just because, you know, we're, we're in such a world of, you know, I got to have it and I got to have it now. You know, when I pull up into the line at Carl's Jr., if it takes too long to get my food, I start getting upset. If it takes more than 10 minutes, I'm thinking about backing out and getting out of line because I'm not going to do this, right? We're like that. Oftentimes, we approach the things of God in that same way. God, I've been praying for, I've been praying for two years. My brother still hasn't come to faith. I can use those guys as an example. Both of my brothers, man, put me on my knees for years before they ever came to Jesus. Our daughter, 19 years out there before she gave her life to Christ and began, you know, to serve him with her life. You know, I can, I can see the fruit. I'm blessed that that fruit has been there for me to visualize, to actually experience. But I know there are some that, man, they just, they're not seeing it. It's not yet. But that's why we are told, don't, don't lose heart. You know, we always think, we, th we think we see everything. Oh, it's not working, it's not working, it's not working. I don't see any change. I don't see this going on. But we don't know what's happening in the heart of a person. And we must pray and trust and believe the Lord and understand. <laughs> you know, it's hard for us sometimes to realize that God actually loves the people we pray for more than we do. He wants to see them saved more than we want to see them saved. That's a winning combination, right? So we trust the Lord that he will do what he wants to do. Verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So sharing blessings involves much more than teaching the word and giving of our material substance. It also involves doing good to all men. There are those in this world who do evil. We see it in Psalms uh, 34 and verse 16 the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off remembrance of them from the earth in fact there are those who return evil for good according to Psalm 35 12 they reward me evil for good uh, to the sorrow of my soul most people in the world return good for good and evil for evil as we see in Luke's gospel chapter 6 32 through 35 but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. That's the heart of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. But the Christian is supposed to return good for evil, as we've seen there in Luke's gospel, but also in Romans chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. I'm kind of running out of time, so I'm not going to read through that. It's a passage of scripture that we are familiar with, but yet, you know, it's, I'd encourage you to read it. It's real simple. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. Do not seek to have vengeance on somebody else. That's God's gig, not ours. And we're not to do that. And so we are to return good for evil. Um, and to do this in a spirit of Christian love as well. Actually, the Christian's good works are a spiritual sacrifice that he gives to the Lord, according to Hebrews thirteen sixteen. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And we're to... We are to do good to all men, according to Matthew 5, 16, where he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, it is a testimony to the world that we really do belong to Christ. Our love, one for another, easily done within the church sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, maybe not. Uh, but it's, he calls us, to love one another in the church, but he also calls us to love those outside the church as well. As we do good to all men, we must give priority to the household of faith, the fellowship of the believers. This does not mean that the local church should become an exclusive clique with the members isolated from the world around them and doing nothing to help the lost. Rather, it is a matter of balance. Certainly, believers in Paul's day would have greater needs than would the outsiders since many of the believers suffered for their faith. Furthermore, a man always carries his own family or cares for his own family uh, before he cares for his neighborhood. We must remember, however, that we share with that what that we share with other Christians so that all of us might be able to share with a needy world. The Christian in the household of faith is a receiver that he might become a transmitter. As we abound in love one for another, we overflow with love for all men. According to 1 Thessalonians 3.12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. And this is how it was meant to be within the church. Then we start coming to the conclusion of the letter. He says in verse 11, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. So there is a, a, just like with a lot of things in the scriptures, you know, there's always a debate amongst scholars and commentators as to what things mean. And certainly there is with this one here. There are many that believe uh, because of Paul's statement about how they loved him so much that they would have given up their own eyes if they could they believed that the thorn in the flesh that Paul had was that it was his eyesight. That, and uh, there are those, <laughs> they go into all kinds of stuff. And I don't know that there's really any proof of it, so I'm not going to bother to go into it. I do know this. this. The emphasis that is spoken of here is, see with what large letters that I write, it certainly is, I want to get, you, get your attention. If you're going to send me an email or a text, and you want to make sure and emphasize something to me. What is the best way to do that? All caps. That, 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 that. You know, I'm emphasizing, you know, how I feel about this, right, with that. Exclamation point several times afterward, right? That's what we do. Well, this would be the same thing in Paul's day. See what, with what large letters that I am writing to you. 
I am telling you, this is important. Now, listen to what I have to say. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. He says, listen to me. This is, this is his final word. He's been saying this throughout his whole epistle, right? He gets to the end. He says, let me reemphasize this to you, that circumcision is going to avail you nothing. It's not going to do any good. Don't get circumcised. Don't listen to these people because what they're trying to do is they're trying to make sure that they don't have the persecution that comes with trusting in the cross of Christ rather than in the law. Because, you know, be honest with you, it was nothing for them to uh, be accepted in the Jewish community and, and somewhat into the church community as well. These that trusted in the flesh, in the law, and in circumcision, and all these different things, to them their life was made easy by rejecting the cross of christ because what did the cross say the cross said the law is dead there's only one way to heaven and that's through jesus that's pretty that's pretty exclusive right jesus says it he says you know i'm the way the truth and life and no man comes to the father but by me and there are plenty of people that are out there today that are trying to say oh no you don't have to believe that. You, don't, you, can, you can actually say that you believe that and live differently and you're okay. There's, a lot, there's quite a few that are out there that say that. And then there are those that are out there that say, oh no, you don't have to believe that at all. There are many paths to God. They feel that all religions will get you there. Oh, they're, they're right. <laughs> It'll get you there. But you're not going to like it when you get before God and you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior because you are on the way to hell. That's called the white throne judgment. And you don't want to be there. And so these guys, they do this to avoid the persecution that Paul spoke to us about last week. And the fact is that he was, he was persecuted because of the cross. He said, if I was preaching, remember we talked about that, if I was preaching circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted if I was preaching circumcision? Like I said, it, it, I believe it's because of what he had done with Timothy. They saw that Timothy was circumcised, but he was a Jew, so that was okay. But, you know, hey, Paul says one thing, but he, says, he does something else, you know. But the truth is, is Paul didn't do anything contrary to what he preached at all. And Timothy's circumcision was totally justified because Timothy was a Jew, you know. And so to think that he's being a hypocrite would be ridiculous. But Paul makes it very clear. He says, listen to me. This refers back to the main issue, the attempt to obtain righteousness adhering to the law. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So Paul points out, it, this, this is futility. Uh, the futility of their message is that even they can't live up to it. That was the argument in Jerusalem, remember, before the council in Jerusalem when Paul was making this argument about whether or not the Gentiles needed to be circumcised and obey the law and all of that. And, you know, they, there were some that were saying, oh, yeah, they need to do that. And Peter steps up and he says, why would we ask them to do what we could not even do? We couldn't do it. Peter recognized it, interestingly, of course, because in Galatians he had to stand up to him face to face because of the fact that he cowered down when the Judaizers came in and you know when he saw that happening then he he just backed way off verse 14 God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world so Paul declares that he is that he will not boast in the flesh but that he will boast in the finished work of Christ he trusts in the and his trust and faith in Christ produced a life of freedom, sanctification, holiness, and righteousness. For Paul, the world that was dri the driving force in his life was now dead to him. In Philippians uh, 3, 4, and 6, he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. 
It was his lifestyle beforehand, and he tells them, it gained me nothing, and it will gain you nothing. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And so Paul makes it very clear. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. So walking in the grace of God, which is trusting in the cross, produces peace and mercy in our lives. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 through 28, Paul said this, speaking of those that were coming in, that the Judaizers, he said, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. You know, you look at this list that Paul lines out for us. We don't, we don't have examples of every one of those sayings. We have some of those sayings that we see in the book of Acts about shipwrecked and beaten with rods and that kind of thing. But he tells us there were many more times of those things that went on in his life. When I went to Turkey, it was interesting as I, we were going across the countryside. I never realized that as Paul was making his way from Galatia and all these other places going over the mountains there that are over 9,000 foot in elevation that he would have been walking up and across, you know? I mean, difficult terrain and everything else that that man would go through. And he says, hey, look, they think they got it. They don't. Last verse. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. Paul can wish nothing greater for the Galatians than that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. If this is so, they will walk in grace uh, in a grace relationship with God instead of the legal performance-based relationship that endangered them. So an, an, an appropriate end for the letter and prayer for all our lives as well. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with our spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you. We praise you. What a glorious book it is, Lord, and so many things, so rich, Lord, that Paul had to say to us help us to retain these things and take them to heart and help us to remember Lord if we come away with nothing let us come away with this that we walk by grace by faith and not according to works that Lord everything that we do is because we love you and from that will spring out of us Lord obedience and love and and our desire to do what is right and Lord we thank you for this and we lift this before you in Jesus name Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you guys.